To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Note, this is a true crime story. Character dialogues are direct quotations. In an effort to accurately represent sources, some cited opinions are depictions of a past social sentiment and do not represent the beliefs of the content creator. In addition, this contains violent and dark subject matter. Listener discretion advised. That young Elliot had been accustomed to visiting Griffith Park in the vicinity of the spot where the lifeless body was found is proved by evidence which the police have obtained. This evidence will be given to the sheriff before night. Welcome, dear listener, to LA 1909, a true crime podcast uncovering a city's history through a murder mystery. The case is that of a young girl, a working-class immigrant's daughter, found murdered, an all-American LA sheriff, and a parade of suspects. A Los Angeles homicide investigation will be reconstructed using early 20th century records and newspaper articles. This episode, renewed interest in Ben Elliott. A major clue is uncovered, and we trudge further into an investigation of new and old suspects. I'm John E. Marino, and this is the Griffith Park Murder Mystery. Episode 6, Through Pathless Ways. When Ben Elliott was visited by his father, B.F. Elliott, at the county jail, the young man broke down and, throwing his arms about his father's neck, claimed, I did not do it, Dad. I, I did commit the robberies, but I know nothing of the murder. I believe you, son, and I will stand by you. I think you have been awfully wronged in this regard, but everything will come out right in the end. Elliot regained his composure, saying he would plead guilty to all charges of burglary against him, throwing himself on the mercy of the court, and seek probation. The following statement from Lamore, North Dakota, Elliot's home, shows that aside from little escapades, he had never been known to commit a vicious act. The people of this city are greatly surprised to learn that Benny Elliot has gotten into serious trouble. There is nothing in the family history and antecedents of the young man which serve in any way to explain the conduct if indeed he is guilty of the crime charged against him. His father, B.F. Elliot, has been a resident of the city during the last 16 years and is one of our most substantial and highly respected citizens. Until very recently, he has been an official abstractor of the county. On May 9th, he received a telegram calling him to Los Angeles, but the circumstances which occasioned his trip were not known here until lately. Benny Elliott's mother, who died about 10 years ago, was a woman of refinement and beautiful character. There are two children in the family, Benny and his sister, which is his junior by about four years. Although motherless during the past decade, these children have been reared with great care and watched over with tender solicitude. He graduated with honors from the high school of this city two years ago and determined to adopt the profession of medicine, partly through ill health and 
partly because of some escapades common to college youths, his studies at Pillsbury Academy of Owatonna, Minnesota were interrupted and he sent to California last fall for his health. What his conduct has been since he went west is not known here. Elliot pointed out to the officers every step he made when he left his camp on the Tuesday morning following the murder. And at the conclusion of the test, Sheriff Hamill reiterated his belief in the innocence of the young man. Just over a mile away from Griffith Park, in the Ivanhoe District, today's Silver Lake, David Dwyer, homesteader and alcoholic, heads to a clearing just off his property and next to the riverbed to check on a horse he has grazing there. As he arrives at the pasture, Dwyer is struck by a peculiar clump lying in the grass. He approaches the article and discovers it to be a blood-spattered workman's shirt. Leaving the clue undisturbed, Dwyer immediately alerts the police. Sheriff Hamill speeds to the Dwyer Ranch. Neighbors and onlookers are prevented from entering the vicinity of the discovery. Deputies and detectives hunt for footprints or other clues that might further the investigation, while Hamill keeps a close command over the prime piece of evidence. Torn and blood bespattered, a black and white shirt, probably the most important clue in the mystery of the murder. It is a cheap cotton shirt, white, with black stripes running in small checks through it. It is a negligee with a soft bosom and collar attached, a typical laboring man's garment. The cuffs and sleeves have been torn. The front, a solid crimson blotch, with the sleeves smeared by blood marks and what may prove to be finger marks. Sheriff Hamill swiftly conducts the evidence to the station, locking the shirt in his office, not allowing anyone to handle the clue. He hopes to have it investigated for fingerprints with a microscope. The sheriff and his deputies strongly believe if they can identify the owner of the blood-stained shirt, they will have solved the mystery of Anna Polterra's murder. Ben Elliott had just pled guilty to his burglaries in a Burbank court and was just recently returned to the jailhouse. His father was deeply disappointed that after the release at Burbank, he was unable to take his son back to the North Dakota home and give him a new start in life. The discovery of a blood-stained shirt is of a particular interest because a few days after Anna's murder, driver Z. Rosa spotted a young man, fitting Elliot's description, walking along the San Fernando Road with a buttoned-up jacket, using a handkerchief to imitate a shirt collar, apparently attempting to conceal the fact he was missing a shirt. Naturally, one of the first thoughts on the public's mind is whether this shirt could belong to Ben. The blood-stained shirt was not shown to Elliot, and this fact caused surprise. Sheriff Hamill said he knew the shirt did not belong to the youth. Nevertheless, 
The admission by Elliot that he was in the vicinity of Glendale and left his camp there at four o'clock the Tuesday morning following the murder leads to all sorts of conjectures. Despite Sheriff Hamill's insistence on Ben Elliott's innocence, many investigators are still suspicious of the boy, and recently uncovered circumstantial evidence could potentially implicate the youth in the murder. Experienced officer writes his analysis by L.R. Burks. For many years, a detective in New Orleans and other cities. I'm told that near the scene of the murder was found a torn copy of a smutty medical book. This bespeaks the boy to whom the awakening of sex is still half a mystery. I am very much inclined to believe the murderer will turn out to be a young man, or boy, in whom the full fury of a course of sexual passion had dawned, a dull-witted young beast. Elliot was known to have an interest in studying medicine. This could prove mildly damning if the text is his. But there is technically no direct evidence linking the book to Elliot, let alone the crime. That wasn't the case, however, with the next clue. The sheriff and his deputies were informed of a black leather pocketbook picked up within 60 yards of where the body of the girl was found. It held a small mirror with a chrome back and squat handle. The exterior had styled in gold lettering, Farmers State Bank, Lemoore, North Dakota. A side pocket concealed six or so cards engraved with the name Ben Elliott. This city is the home of the Elliott family. The pocketbook, officers say, was the property of young Elliott. Though this would prove Ben's familiarity with the region of the park where the crime occurred, the pocketbook had been discovered two months before the murder, back on March 6th. It was not brought to the investigators' attention until Elliot's name had appeared in the papers. But perhaps the most damning lead against Ben, proving he had been deceptive toward officers during the investigation, comes from his far west camp at the beach. In searching yesterday morning, the camp which was occupied by Elliot during his stay in Redondo, a copy of a paper dated May 23rd was found which gave an account of the murder. The paper was buried in a small hole in the rear of the camp. This fact is of significance only to the extent that it proves some discrepancies in the story told by Elliot after his arrest. On being questioned when brought to Los Angeles, he stated that he had read no paper containing mention of the murder, but later retracted this statement and acknowledged he had read of it in a Sunday paper. The paper was shown to Elliot yesterday afternoon, and he said he had forgotten hiding it. Whatever else transpired at the private session was not made public. But young Elliot wore a far more troubled expression as he came from the sheriff's office than at any time since his arrest. In order to clear up what in print seemed to add up to a mounting case against him, Ben Elliott is taken to the scene of the crime. The youth leads the way, handcuffed to Deputy Sheriff Harry Wright, with Sheriff Hamill and Coroner Hartwell 
following closely behind. As far as Hamill is concerned, the stunt is merely to satisfy the public of the boy's innocence. Likewise, Hartwell's theory had been steadfast since the outset. The murder must have been committed by a Mexican laborer. Elliot openly admits to the team that he had discarded a shirt when camping near the park, but showing no fear or telltale emotion, the investigators apparently don't find this suspicious. Elliot had stated that he would be able to show the officers where he had thrown an old shirt he had worn while camping about in the riverbed. It was thought that the blood-spattered shirt found in the field by a rancher named Dwyer might have belonged to Elliot. The young man, however, led the officers in another direction. He pointed out the place of his camp, but did not find the shirt he was looking for. The officers did not regard this fact as of great importance, for with great force of assertion, Elliot said the blood-stained shirt, which was found by the riverbed Wednesday afternoon, did not belong to him. The shirt is then taken to the residence of E.A. Bennett in Tropico, where Elliot had been a guest and then a squatter over the past few months. The Bennetts view the bloody evidence and unequivocally state they had never seen Ben in a shirt like that. Investigators then question a working hand from the home who had laundered the boy's clothes. The woman agreed she had never seen Ben with the shirt. Los Angeles, May 28. Ben Elliott, the youth held on a charge of robbery, but suspected of complicity in the murder of little Annie Polterra. Today, he refused to talk further to the officers after a consultation with his father and was taken to the tanks, and stated yesterday he would no longer talk concerning any crimes with which he was concerned. And just like that, the case doesn't stall, it reverses. alleged facts which have been regarded as fixed and as a safe basis for deduction are now challenged. For instance, the belief that the murderer came back on Monday to the scene of the killing and brought the child's lunchbox. Some of the officers claim that lunchbox, etc., were there all the time, but were overlooked in the first careless search. Detective Tom Rico still clings to his theory that the Mexican seen to pass the roadway on the afternoon of the murder is the guilty man. Due to the revitalized interest in Hispanic males, a wave of Latino suspects are once again pulled into the central station, only to be quickly cleared. A railroad worker near Hollywood, Jose Valdez, is kept in the county jail until he can account for his movements. Another man, matching the description, is apprehended at the scene of the murder. Another is taken in from Lancaster. And a fourth, all the way from San Diego. Then, Sheriff Hamill rushes to Riverside in his automobile and arrests Jose Martinez, only to discover he is the same man Hamill had just apprehended in Lancaster a few days earlier. The only reported voice against this brute force tactic came from an unofficial sleuth, 
former New Orleans detective Burks, wrote in an op-ed, The life of any Mexican resembling published descriptions and seen hanging around this place I believe to be in danger. The chief danger in this case is not that the murderer may escape. The danger is that some innocent person may be hanged by a mob. But rumors around Glendale began to boil about another suspect, cleared early on, but considered once again. Chief of the Bureau of Criminal Investigation at the DA's office, S.L. Brown, drives his auto to the Glendale area early in the morning, then returns to the city station with an unlikely passenger, Anna's mother, Mary Polterra. A rumor was abroad yesterday that evidence had been discovered linking the father with the murder. The discovery was said to have been made that Polterra, at times, had quarreled with his wife, that he had acted brutally toward the little Annie, and that he sometimes had been in doubt as to whether she was his own child. Mary is escorted to the DA's investigative offices and is interviewed for hours. It was known that Anna Pulterra had said on that fatal day that she did not want to go home. And for that reason, it was thought that the little girl feared some form of violence from a member of the family. John Pulterra promised to go to the school and find out where she was. Investigation by detectives has shown that he went to the school, but did not ask the teacher where his daughter was, or ask if she had been at school. He watched the children come out, asked a question of one of the pupils, then went away. On the occasion of his search for Annie, it has been shown that he only went as far as the vent house, then turned back after leaving his horse hitched within 20 feet of the child's dead body. His manner of uneasy reluctance and continual edging away when asked questions has caused him to be viewed askance by some of the detectives. After Mary's release, it was evident she had denied all of the rumors about her husband. Still, questions persisted as to why John did not report Anna's disappearance for so long, and how could he miss his daughter's body in the mustard when he admits to having hitched his horse less than 50 feet from her body. Once again, aiming to appease the public, Sheriff Hamill brought Mr. Polterra in for questioning. The detective had questioned Polterra at his home. He had learned that the old man on occasion when he had been drinking abused his wife. Some people have said mean things about you. There are some who believe that you know much more about this murder than you have told. I've been informed that you are in danger because of these reports. I want you to tell me all you know about it. John's knife becomes of interest when he mentions he often scrubbed it with gasoline and never used it on animals. Some detectives spot small stains on the knife, which they believe could be blood. Sheriff Hamill reluctantly informs Mr. Polterra that some of the locals are suspicious that he had murdered his own daughter. Oh my God, me? Kill my little baby? Me kill my Annie? Who would say that? Oh my Annie, oh, who would say that? Oh Christ, no, no. 
I'll ask my wife. She know I do no such thing. The elder Polterra breaks down into tears. The knife was turned over to an expert for analysis. And the expert reported that he had found what appeared to be traces of blood on the blade, but in small quantity. The knife, the expert reported, seemed to have been cleaned recently. The sheriff doubts the idea that this knife could have been used in the murder of the girl. Sheriff Hamill states that the old man and his son have both established perfect alibis. Polterra is an old Italian Swiss, speaking poor English. He has been naturally confused and frightened by so many policemen and reporters. After a long session of painful questions, John is once again cleared of suspicion and permitted to return home. Sheriff Hamill even offers him police protection from any over-vigilant neighbors, but John refuses the help. As for the young Ben Elliot, he pleads guilty and is sentenced to 30 days in county jail for the theft of the Redondo Fish Company boat, although he is sentenced under the name Stevens, the one he initially gave in Redondo. One more complaint against Ben Elliot. The latest complaint was signed by Jay Peterson of Glendale, who charged that Elliot had stolen his bicycle, which he missed the night of May 17, the day little Annie Polterra disappeared. Sheriff Hamill was notified by the district attorney's office today that B.F. Elliot, father of the boy prisoner, had paid $30 for the loss of the wheel and that there would be no prosecution. The elimination of Ben Elliot has brought the Polterra murder mystery back to the starting point. Over the next two months, a few more suspects will be looked at and quickly eliminated. No other persons would reach Ben Elliot's level of suspicion. And just like that, the investigation into the assault and murder of little Anna Polterra grows cold. Until, almost one year later, Next time on L.A. 1909. All indications point to a clear case of suicide. Well, only yesterday his sister came to Los Angeles, and he had planned to meet her, so I do not think he contemplated ending his life. I will demand an investigation. Mrs. Polterra has become a nervous wreck and frequently has attacks of hysteria when the name of the dead child is mentioned. Polterra pleads guilty to disturbing peace. L.A. 1909 is an independent podcast written, directed, performed, and produced by John E. Marino. To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes. It also helps to comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you are listening. And follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. Music, courtesy of Project Gutenberg Audio. Piano rolls by Scott Joplin and Claude Debussy. Other music performed by John E. Marino.